Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Okay, good evening everyone. Let's uh, get into the Word of God tonight. We are in 1 Samuel 28. Let me just pray before we begin, and then we're going to jump straight in. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your Word. We'd ask now, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit, Lord, you would just open our ears and our hearts and our minds, Lord, to understand the truths within. And pray, Lord, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Okay, so 1 Samuel 28. We're getting to the end chapters now, the sort of the climax of the book of Samuel. If you were here last week, you remember we saw uh, David still on the run, Saul still in pursuit of David, and then we saw David... Um, he, he crept into the camp, he stole his jug and his spear from his head, he, he spared the life of Saul again, and then we saw David flee into the land of the Philistines. So we're going to pick up in chapter 28 and look at this famous passage, obviously, that primarily deals with the witch or the medium at Endor. So we're talking about some slightly unusual stuff tonight. But let's just read the first few verses. Chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. Now it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. And David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And so Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now these verses sort of connect to the... The last sort of chapter 27, you remember David's in the Philistine territory in the place called Gath. The king of this Philistine town is a man named Achish. And David kind of starts ingratiating himself to him. Um, kind of deceitfully, he's doing his own raiding in amongst his time. But it's a, it's a low period in David's life. And we said this is a time where the songwriter of Israel writes no psalms. And it's not a sweet period. And we're going to see that he sort of traps himself with the sort of the sin that he's engaged in entangles him, and that'll come out more in uh, next week's study. But for now, we're going to see that the, the king is basically asking him here to go to war against Israel. And now, if you imagine, this is David, the anointed king of Israel, who is in the land of the Philistines, a place where he should not be, and now he's being asked by this king that he spent so many year or well, year and four months now serving, in, in a, for effect, to go to war against his people. It's a very difficult situation. And I think that's why you, you have this reply, um, David's sort of slightly cryptic, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. It's kind of vague, he doesn't commit necessarily either way, it's more of a, a way, I think, to just move on with the conversation. And we'll pick up, this sort of gets picked up again in the next chapter, but then we move into verse 3, which is... A kind of standalone event, but we'll see what happens. Let's read verses 3 to 7. <clears throat> now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. And so the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunanem. And Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped in Gilboa. And when Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. And then Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his, and, and his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So this is the famous passage of the medium at Endor. You see, it says, begins, Samuel was dead. And I think it's emphasising that again, because Samuel was this great prophet, the last of the judges, the first of the prophets, and he often gave spiritual counsel to Saul, quite often in the form of strong rebuke, but he was a, a giant in Israel, basically, in the spiritual sense of the term. And there's obviously a huge spiritual vacuum now left in Israel after Samuel's death. Samuel was dead. And it says that Saul removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. Now, it, Saul did this in obedience to the law. Now, this was in the early days of his reign when he was following the Lord more closely. Um, I'll read to you a couple of verses. Leviticus 19.31 
It says, do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 20 verse 6 says, As for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists to play the harlot after them, I will also set my face against that person and I will cut him off from his people. You see, and there's a few more verses I could give like that. The Lord speaks against these things in the strongest possible terms. He is very, very serious about it. Now a medium or a spiritist, or a necromancer. There's lots of different sort of names that all kind of come around this same... This is basically someone who is trying to contact the spirit world. To either speak to the dead, as they interpret it, um, basically making contact with the spirit world. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go through. It comes up again, obviously, when we see this episode with what the witch does here. He is greatly afraid when he sees the army of um, the Philistines. Now again, this is a contrast from Saul. You remember in Saul's early life, he was the most handsome man in all of Israel, the, you know, the proud king. It says he was courageous, he was kind of calling people to battle, to fight. And now we see him here and he's sort of cowering, he's scared, he's been out of fellowship with the Lord for so long that he's going to these sort of drastic measures. He's seeking the advice of a spiritist. He's greatly afraid. So what does he do? <laughs> it says he sought the Lord. Now you might think, well that's what's wrong with that, that's exactly what he should be doing and he sought the Lord. I don't see this as sort of some act of repentance that he's gone wrong on Saul's behalf. I see this more as, if you could imagine the phrase, prayer, the last refuge of a scoundrel. That that expression there, this is sort of, (laughs) I think in desperation he's he's crying out to the Lord, but he's not crying out in the sense that he's saying, I'm sorry for what I've done. He's in trouble and he wants a way out. That's basically what, he, what he's doing. I don't think this is a sincere seeking after the Lord. He's trying to get an answer. What's going to happen in the battle? That's basically what he's doing. Here. He's just sort of using the Lord as he's going to use this medium as some sort of cosmic answer machine. Uh, and Obviously the Lord is not interested in that. And it says, The Lord did not answer him. The Lord did not answer him. There is nothing but silence for Saul, and I'd imagine this silence at this time must have been quite deafening, if we could say that. Now, obviously, some people, the question immediately arises, why did God not answer? You know, there are many verses in the Bible that seem to imply that if you seek me, the Lord promises that he will answer you. And again, quite, quite simply, I'd put it, those verses usually imply an honest heart that is truly seeking God. I think what, what we see with Saul here is a heart that is in rebellion, is in, reju- in judgment, and it's not actually seeking the Lord, he's actually seeking just information about what will happen in the battle. And there's a big difference. Saul's under judgment, he's in a continued state of rebellion, and most importantly, and I think this is the main point, he has already rejected the word of the Lord. He's rejected the revealed word of the Lord that has come to him through Samuel many times at this point. It's very unlikely that God is going to give extra revelation to someone who has already revealed, uh, already rejected his revealed revelation at that time. And that's a very important lesson for us in the church too. Quite often you see in the church this dramatic seeking after the, the spectacular, the miraculous, the signs and the wonders. Now we believe in a God who is capable of doing all those, all those things. But more often than not, you'll find that the, the groups and the people that seek after these things have a very, very low view of doctrine. And for me, those two things just don't go, just don't, don't really connect. I think it should be the ones that have a high view of Scripture should, that should expect the Spirit to give them those revelations, those words of knowledge and those prophecies and those sorts of things. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But here we have the Lord did not answer him. Quite simply, the Lord did not answer him because Saul was not listening. He was not listening to the Lord. He'd rejected the Lord by quite a few times by then. So because the Lord wouldn't answer him by prophets, by Urim, Urim was like an old stone that the priests used to, to use. Um, I don't know how he had access to this, because the priest, Abithar, was actually with David, um, who would have had the Urim. So whether Saul tried to have his own priest make some, or not, not, no one's entirely sure on that. Um, but he didn't do it by dreams, or any way that he knew that he could communicate. And then he says, Seek for me a woman who is a medium. Now I want you to notice the progression here. When the word of the Lord is rejected, other forms of communication are sought. You see, this is that man is incurably religious. You might have noticed that. This, if, you, if you want to do it by the numbers, people who are actually confirmed atheists in this world, there's a very, very small percentage of the world 
And it's a very, very small period of history where they've only had a small percentage of the world. The vast majority of world history has been to some sort of spiritual worldview. When the word of the Lord is rejected, and I want to show you this because it's a problem in the church, and people will turn to other things, quite often to the occult, quite often to some sort of pseudo-religious spiritualism. We call it New Age spiritualism in, the, in, in these terms. So there's a lot of different things that people turn to. But let's turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 6, if you can, for a moment. And I want to show you this progression. Because just as the nation of Israel <coughs> fell away from the Lord and in, into captivity, we know that from the Bible, what happened to Israel is supposed to be a lesson and an instruction for us. We run this risk too. Jeremiah chapter 6. We're going to just flick through a few verses. Now, Jeremiah is prophesying to the kingdom of Judah in Israel, in the future of Israel. It's obviously later than the period we're talking about. And he's warning them why they are going to go into captivity. Captivity is when the the nation of Babylon came and obviously took, took the captives back to Babylon. Daniel was part of that captivity. But these are the reasons why. Listen to Jeremiah 6 verse 10. The Lord says, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Their ears are closed and they cannot listen. That's a very good description of Saul in this situation. Behold, the word of the Lord has become a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. The word of the Lord has become a reproach to them. Not only have they rejected it, they despise it. Look down to verse 19 of the same chapter. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their plans, because they have not listened to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it also. They don't listen to the revealed word of God. They don't listen to the prophets. It's the same as us not listening to the word of God, the apostles, the New Testament, and the prophets today. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah 10, verse 21. It says, For the shepherds have become stupid and have not sought the Lord. Therefore they have not prospered and all their flock is scattered. You see, this was coming from top down, so to speak. The leaders were responsible in leading the the nation of Israel astray. The shepherds have become stupid. And what is the stupidity? It's rejecting the word of the Lord. We talked about it last week, didn't we? We said Saul's life was summed up by the words, I've played the fool. I've played the fool because I've rejected the words of the Lord. It's the same thing. Turn over to Jeremiah 14. We'll just look at this final one. Jeremiah 14, 14. Then the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them, nor commanded them, nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. One thing that you find is that when you reject the word of God, people will start doing things like this. False prophets will arise, people saying stupid things in opposition to the word of God, people being used for divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. Now we see this in the church too. Israel was was guilty of falling into this. I believe the church has been seduced into this in many times now. Some people you see have an understanding of the gift that sort of operate like this. It's sort of mystical bits and pieces that come through. I just don't think that's what the gifts of of the Spirit are. This is more like what is happening here. False visions, divinations, futility, and the deceptions of their own minds. Quite often they outright contradict the Word of God. Have you ever heard the phrase, don't put God in a box? Now people usually say that to you in the context of stop critiquing this miraculous, wonderful work of God, or you're being too judgmental and you can't put God in a box. Now that phrase is really... (laughs) You see, God puts himself in the box for our benefit because he's too if he didn't do that we wouldn't be able to understand him because he's too marvelous and mysterious he's just too high above us but he gives us these guidelines you could say the word of god whereby he reveals himself to us and he gives us some very definites about who he is what his character and what he will do and we are told never to go above them so just be careful it's not always wrong there's different contexts that people use it, but be careful when you hear people throwing that phrase at you if you're, if you're actually trying to, to match something up with the Word of God. The Bible says, test all things. 
You know, be a good Berean, search the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. This, this is our charge as Bereans, as disciples, to see if things match up the word of God. The prophets in Israel were acting no different than the mediums. They were doing the exact same thing. This is what happens when the word of God is rejected. Many of these occult practices have crept into the church. Visualisation. This is, this is a, an occult practice that goes all the way back to, back to Egypt. You can read in some of the early Egyptian papyri how to do visualisation. It's to do with power of the mind, uh, visualising kingdoms and things like that. If you read many books from the emerging church today, from some of these sensationalist movements, they will teach you how to visualise Jesus. And vi- this, all these things, I'm afraid, are occult. But they have their roots in the occult. There's different levels of how dangerous they are, but this is where they come from. Uh, quite often they just Christianise the terminology. Contemplative prayer. Have you ever heard that? It's very popular in the emerging church. Contemplative prayer is nothing more than visualisation with a bit of Christianese and Catholic mysticism mixed in. <coughs> the power of positive thinking, the power of now, faith healing, all these different sorts of things, they all really have their roots, I would say, in the occult. And there's plenty of works that document that. You look at the popularity of books like The Shack, The Secret, The Boy Who Went to Heaven and Came Back. These things always become bestsellers because they're sensational. They tell stories that really, I would say, contradict the Word of God on many places. But people seem to flock to them and the churches love it. There's another verse in Jeremiah, we didn't read it, but in that same passage where it says, the, people, the, the prophets prophesy on their, own, on their own understanding and my people love it so. See, people love this sort of stuff. But I believe as Christians we're not supposed to love this sort of stuff. We're supposed to test this sort of stuff. And that's what we have a, a problem when the church re- rejects the word of God because we have no standard for doing this. The word of God is the standard and that's what we must test it with. You see, now Saul here, rather than turn in repentance, he seeks a message from the occult. And he says in verse 7 that I may inquire of her. He asks his men, you know, are there any mediums left in the land, and I love that his men immediately go, yeah, we know where one is. Kind of shows you a little bit how seriously they took that order. Um, yep, we know where there's one. We'll, we'll go and find her. And they okay. So, let's read verses 8 to 14, and this is the sort of this very unusual event that we have here in Scripture. Then Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes, and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night, And he said, Conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. But the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, there shall be no punishment come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel... She cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid, but what you do, but what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, said to her what, is this, what is this form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. Now this is an unusual event. We're going to talk about this a little bit now. Now, before we get into this, I want to read to you a little quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters. Has anyone read The Screwtape Letters, this book? It's a great book by Lewis, where he sort of does an imaginative bit of writing where it's a conversation between two demons, and they're talking about how to deceive Christians. And it's very, very insightful. There's one, one quote where he says this, There were two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence... And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. On the one hand, to completely deny their existence. On the other hand, to see them in everything, in every bad thing that happens. Both of those are wrong. We want to try and have a bit of balance. However, if we ever were going to talk about it, this is one piece of text where we could maybe get into some of this stuff. You see, the truth is that the Christianity is a supernatural worldview. It is a supernatural worldview. Our faith is founded upon a supernatural act, the resurrection of Jesus Christ primarily. But even if you go right back to the first verse, in the beginning God created. It is a 
supernatural worldview. We must remember that. And this is actually quite easy to sort of, you know, if we were looking at this from an apologetic standpoint, we would say that, you know, behind, you know, the best explanation for all these conscious minds that are on this planet is that they originally came from one infinite mind. And that also confirms the fact that everything, the foundation of this universe, is information, right down to the very molecular level at the cell. It is information, complex, highly specified, complex information, which again, always comes from a mind. Therefore, the explanatory power of God is very, very good when you're looking at these two things. Now, if you're a naturalist, one of the biggest... A naturalist is someone who believes there is absolutely nothing except matter, like you know, like Richard Dawkins and these sorts of people, one of the biggest problems that their worldview has is explaining consciousness, is explaining mind. In philosophy, they call it the mind-body problem. How does non-consciousness create consciousness? How does non-life create life? All these sorts of problems. How does order, disorder create order? You know, these are a big problem for that worldview. So just on that basis alone, you know, the, the argument for a supernatural worldview is quite strong. And many people have, have come to faith by just looking at those issues through science and through various other things. But we must remember that, because quite often we live in this world where we're encountered with a very strong naturalism that we just don't like to talk about those sorts of things. But we must remember, primarily, it's a supernatural worldview. However, people like Dawkins excluded, the popularity of what we would call the paranormal... Occult's fallen out of fashion. It's too, uh, too judgmental to say that someone's into the occult now. People say it's the paranormal. It's growing culturally too. In fact, it's huge. You see, like I said, a culture that rejects the word of God will seek these sorts of things from other sources. A recent poll in Britain. One third of all Britons believe in paranormal activity. One third. You know, that's, a huge, that's a huge amount of the amount of people we have in our country. And the percentage goes up as the age bracket goes down. Younger people seem to be more susceptible for this, for some reason. I'm guessing it's through media influence, to be honest. But this is why. We believe in the paranormal. And it actually is the statistics are much higher for women, too. Um, and I find that, that quite an interesting statistic, because when you notice when Saul says to his men, he says, go and find for me a woman who is a medium. And even as you look around today, this is one area that the majority of people involved in these sorts of things would, would be women. Um, I don't know why that is, but it just is something we do. I think if you go through history, this seemed to be an area like the Oracle of Delki and the High Priestesses. Women were actually the leaders in this sort of area. Um, some people have suggested that it may be women are obviously more sensitive to religious things. I don't know, I don't want to stereotype, you know, I hate these sort of broad stereotypes, but I think it works in a positive sense too, because throughout history, it's usually been women who are the first to respond to the gospel in new places. Throughout the Great Awakenings we talked about last week, predominantly the majority of people being saved were women in, in a lot of places. Um, so it kind of works both ways. What's the truth in it? I don't really know, but they are what the statistics are. In America... Three in four people, recent poll, believe in paranormal activity. Three in four people. Now, paranormal activity is a broad term that can mean anything from believing in demons and angels to poltergeists to, you know, extrasensory telepathy, all sorts of, there's like huge amounts of lists. But there is huge interest in these topics. So why is it so often ignored in the church particularly? I would say one thing because our culture is shaped by sort of this enlightenment rationalism, this sort of hard scientism that doesn't really allow for any of these sorts of things, it mocks them in fact, um, yet that's not really the majority of history, everyone from like Arthur Conan Doyle to Sigmund Freud to Carl Jung was involved in the occult quite strongly um, in writing these famous Sherlock Holmes books in, you know <laughs> half of psychological theory is founded on the information that these psychologists got from their spirit demons most people are completely unaware of that in 2007, there was a movie called Paranormal Activity. I'm not going to ask if anyone's seen it. I don't want to embarrass anyone. But this movie was made on a home video camera. It was made for about $15,000. It was shot in seven days, and the idea is there's a couple of move into a house, and there's obviously it's a poltergeist-type thing, and they want to try and catch the ghost, and they film it. Um, there's, talk, there's Ouija boards and all that sort of stuff in it. Now, this movie... $15,000 to make, that's, you know, that's a nothing. That's, that's not even, you know, that's so little for movies. 
It grossed £193 million worldwide. And it's actually the most profitable film ever made. £193 million, 15,000. Because people were so interested in this topic. And it was said to be very, very scary. Now, there's a, there's a Christian apologist. His name's Jeremiah Johnson. He runs a, an organisation called the Christian Thinkers Association. He wrote a book recently called Unanswered, which is basically just hundreds of questions that he's had through his ministry over the years. And he makes an interesting observation, and this is particularly with people under 35. He says that their questions have changed. People over that age and into the sort of the older generations, they are more concerned with the historicity and the reliability of the Bible, defending the resurrection and these sorts of questions. The younger people are asking questions, and he says the top questions that he gets asked now are, one, about the paranormal, and two, about mental health. They're the top two questions that this man gets asked, and he wrote a book called Unanswered that obviously deals with all of these things. And quite often, he says, the church is refusing to engage these questions. And that's a problem, because when they're not getting biblical answers from the church, they go out into the world and they find other answers. People are pushed into these other means. You know, one in three, 33% of Britons believe this, one, you know, three in four Americans believe this sort of thing. We need to be balanced, we need to heed the warning of the prophets, and we also need to give biblical answers for these sorts of things. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19 and 20, Isaiah, the Lord through Isaiah says this, he says, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, he then says, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no light in them. You want a very simple guideline for these things. If they do not speak according to the law and to the testimony, it is because they have no light in them. Therefore, the Lord says, (laughs) we should have nothing to do with them. But we should understand them, be wise and engage them. Now, this is very critical for our age. We know from 1 Timothy 4, it says in the, the Spirit explicitly says that in the last days, people will depart, fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And I believe these are some of those sorts of things that you see. Like I say, you see this stuff slipping into the church under, under other names. You stick a Christian term on it and you can get away with anything these days. That's just a clear lack of discernment in the church. So we have Saul. He goes by night in disguise to this woman. Now, I think this is funny because he disguises himself, puts a cloak over his head to go by night. But I would say, actually, he's actually, that's his true self coming out. That is the sort of life he's living now, that he goes to mediums and spiritists. I think it's actually where he's pretending to be the king still. That is him pretending. Because we know he's already been told he's not going to be the king anymore. If he was a man of God, he would have accepted the Lord's word and handed over to David at this time. But he, he covers himself up. And if you look at a map, I don't have one available here, but to get to where he's going, to where this witch is, he has to go very close to where the Philistines are camping. And this is very risky. Obviously, they're about to go into battle. This is the, this is the king of one nation. Obviously, if you kill the king, the battle's pretty much won. Um, and this guy is taking a risk. At night time, he is sneaking round. He has to go right round the camp of the Philistines to get to this witch. And I find this quite telling. Because many of us who have been, who have sinned, all of us, or have, you know, we risk sometimes great personal danger, either with our own lives, physically, spiritually, or with the the lives of those around us, when we're determined to commit sin. Okay? That, the, the sort of the lust for sin that you can get can be so powerful that common sense goes completely out the window and you just are deceived by the pleasures of sin. The Bible calls it the pleasures of sin. They're only for a fleeting moment, and then cometh destruction. But this is sort of what I see Saul doing here. He's just putting himself and his army, his whole army, at such risk to go to this woman. And I think it's very easy, you know, we can sit here and read this passage and judge Saul, you know, he's clearly just doing ridiculous things. But I think if we do that too easily... We're in the situation where sort of pride cometh before a fool and that sort of thing. Now, verse ten, the uh, this this medium is basically like she she thinks this is a setup. This is sort of like a government, you know. This is the the police at her door and they're trying to entrap her. You know, oh, I don't know anything about mediums or spiritists. Well, what all this stuff here? That's nothing to do with it. 
Um, but Saul, this is why, yeah, this verse, he says, as the Lord lives, there shall be no punishment upon you. Now this is the funny thing. And this is again the deceitfulness of, of sin. He says, as the Lord lives. Okay, so think of the duplicity here. This is the king of Israel who has secretly, clandestinely sought out a medium and he's asking her to engage in witchcraft for his benefit. <coughs> and she says, oh, I'm not allowed to do that. And then he says, as the Lord, he, he swears by the name of the God of Israel that nothing bad will happen to her. Now that's just pure deceit. He is deceived and he is deceiving others at this time. Sin twists our thinking and it twists our actions. You see, it shows how far he had wandered from God. He asks, so obviously Saul, she says there, who do you want me to bring up? And he says, Samuel. And then she, she obviously starts going through whatever ritual it is she usually does. And then it says that she cried out with a great, uh, with a voice. Why, and she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. She cried out with a great, and this sort of indicates to me that something out of the usual for one of her seances is happening here. Because in seances you wouldn't generally see something, the, the, the medium would in any sort of channel a voice to you and they would be your sort of go-between before the spirit world. And just again, another note on that, the mediums obviously sort of may probably believe that they are communicating with the, the real kind of deceased loved ones or whatever these things are usually flogged off as, um, but we know better, there's no way they can do that without God's permission, they are simply just communicating with the demonic realm here. And this is why God says this is just something you cannot and should not ever be involved with. It's very dangerous. It's not something to really mess around with. But she cried out with a loud, loud, a loud voice. Now let's just pause and see what's going on here. Because it raises a lot of questions. People have a lot of questions about this. Can a medium actually communicate and bring up the dead? Because it goes on to say that she sees this, this divine, this divi- the word for the divine just means this kind of majestic glowing figure coming up from the earth. Do mediums have the power to do that? I don't believe they do, to be honest. I think scripture clearly teaches that they don't. So then what is going on here? There are three main interpretations for what are happening. One, this is a vision. This is like a vision as in like the Lord would give sort of Isaiah and Jeremiah these visions or John these visions of of what would happen. Number two, some people say that this was just a demonic deception. This was someone impersonating, this was a spirit impersonating Samuel. And then the third interpretation is that this was actually Samuel. Now, I I say that the the best interpretation, I believe, of the text is that this is actually Samuel. Basically, I do believe that this is Samuel. The text just seems to completely, it never gives you any reason not to think that. It says that this is Samuel. uh, And the words that that Samuel speaks here are very reminiscent of words he has spoken previously that we'll, we'll have a look at. Now, the question is, who is in control? Was this the medium that brought up Samuel? I actually don't believe it was the medium who did this. I believe she was actually sort of surplus to requirements at this point. I believe this was a unique event in the history of the world that God allowed for his sovereign purpose at this point. Okay, God was in control of this event because there's no way Samuel could have left the place of the righteous dead without God's permission. There's no way that, that a medium would have access to that sort of, that sort of power. And I think when we see the medium's reaction, that she cried out in fear, this was something she was not expecting. You know, this was not, this was out of the ordinary for her. Um, and the, this whole event sort of just happens now regard, regardless. You see, whatever reason God allowed this for, I kind of see this, that God is still willing to meet Saul here in the lowest part, in his, the lowest of the low here. This is right before the end of Saul's life. Um, it's just a low pit that he's in. And God's still willing to meet him there. Now, Samuel comes, he's allowed back. Now, we see these things in the New Testament. Remember, Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, So it's not without precedent that these things happen. What confuses it is the fact that there's this medium involved. But I I would say remove sort of her from the situation of having power in this situation and just see this is... Well, we'll, we'll, let's read the dialogue that they have. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me? This is verse 15, sorry. By bringing me up. And Saul answered, I'm greatly distressed for the Philistines are waging war against me and God has departed from me and answers me no more. 
either through prophets or by dreams. And therefore I have called you, that you may make known to me, Samuel, what I should do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? The Lord has done according as he spoke through me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbour, to David. As you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, so the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. So we have this passage here. The first thing to note is that Samuel says, Why then have you disturbed me? Why have you disturbed me? Which again indicates that he has obviously come from a place of rest. Um, And I think this again, this is indicative, it indicates that there is a real existence in the afterlife, which is again what part and parcel of the Christian worldview. And this should cause us to remember that reality. Remember 1 Corinthians 2.9, where Paul says, Eye is not seen, ear is not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Okay, it's a place, you know, at this stage, obviously, I believe that Samuel was in a place that, that is called in the scripture Abraham's bosom. It's the place of the righteous dead. It wasn't until after the resurrection of Christ that these people were, were then taken to what we would call heaven. It's a little, little more complicated than that, but we, we won't go into that now. But you see, Saul here, he pours his heart out again, you know, the Lord's not answering me, I'm at this battle, I'm going to get taken out by the Philistines. Samuel's unmoved by this. He simply confirms that the Lord will do exactly what the Lord spoke to you all those years earlier. I think it was 15 years earlier or something in judgment. And then verse 17, notice that little phrase where he says, the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand. That's a very, that's one of the, again, one of these things that identifies this as Samuel for us. In 1 Samuel 15, verses 26 to 27, I'll read it for you. This is when, obviously, Samuel was still giving advice to Saul when he was alive. It says this, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. This is right after he, he disobeys uh, the command to... to uh, and, uh, I can't remember what it was, actually. I think it was he leaves some, some of the people alive and some of the sheep and these sorts of things. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. And so Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbour, who is better than you. He grabbed the edge of his robe and it tore. And then he says, He's torn this kingdom from you. And now we see here Samuel's back and he says, The Lord has torn this kingdom from you. And what's even more interesting is that you'll notice Samuel is identified when he first comes up as a man who is wearing a robe. And the words in the Hebrew are exactly the same. Chances are it's probably that same robe. That is indicating in a sign of judgment. That's how prophets and priests were identified, actually, by their, by their robes. Their mantles, it might, be, it might say in your translation. Mantle is the same word in Hebrew as robe. Um, so it's the same sort of thing. It's, it's you know, the robe's probably still that torn robe. <laughs> the Lord's will hasn't changed, so, so the kingdom is going to be torn from you. And then he goes on to inform him that tomorrow you and your son will be defeated and you will die. Remember his son, Jonathan, godly Jonathan, David's best, you know, David's best friend. They had to part ways at that point when Saul was chasing him for his life. And this is a good lesson for us. You see, sin often affects those around us. You see, and often those who feel its sting most clearly are those who are nearest and dearest to us, our close, our close family, because they're the ones we love the most. Now, we see Saul here affected his family, his son, is going to be caught up in the devastation that he has brought upon him through his poor leadership. And yet there's still no repentance from Saul. You see, in a chapter or so, I think it's 30, we're going to see David's family caught up in the consequences of his sin. These people that he's been raiding decide to get one back on him and they raid his hometown. They take his wife and his, and his family hostage. And they, they arrive back and the whole village has been ransacked. I'm jumping ahead to next week's study, sorry Doug, but um, they take his wife and family. And the men are so mad at David that they immediately want to, they want to stone David. And David's like, you know, that's, that's sort of a natural reaction because, you know, <laughs> when we see that our families are impacted, that's often the trigger moment for us. And this is what happens with David. The interesting thing is that it's that moment when David 
even though he's living in the land of the Philistines, he's been out of, he's not been sort of walking well. It's that moment that he turns to the Lord in repentance. And it says the Lord, David strengthened himself in the Lord. You see, when it's his family that are brought into the conflict, it actually causes David to repentance. Now, we all know this, you know, <laughs> when something touches your family, every rule of etiquette sort of goes out the window. You know, Jake was telling me the other day, my boy Jake, someone was being, describing someone was being mean to him at school. You know, and you know, me and Sarah, we're ready to go, just go and throw down with that kid at school. You know, you don't care, you just, you, just, it, it, you hate that they could hurt someone you love so much. And it, you know, we, all, we all know this, if you could understand that, that analogy. If you don't have kids, I'm sure you can understand it on a different way. But as I was sort of dwelling on this and reading this passage and, and this passage with David, I found it interesting that when this happened to David, it says he strengthened himself in the, in the Lord. And obviously, sometimes when we're angry or we're kind of acting up in the flesh, the Lord is really the last place we want to go. Because we know, you know, the thoughts of our hearts, the things we've probably said, have sort of exceeded, and we need to come back to the Lord and just repent of these things. And this is what I believe David did here, and it was a turning point in his life. And we start to see, now we're going to see David the king as coming out um, through Second Samuel and these sorts of things. But I was thinking about, you know, sin having tragic consequences. Now who knows the most the tragic consequences on the family? that sin can have. Is it not God the Father? Did he not give his only son to deal with the consequences of sin? You see, but the, the thing with him is that it wasn't for his sin. He did that for our sin. And he was willing to watch his son be given into the hands of those who would kill him. You see, that, that's our Lord. There's no one else we should really be going to for strength at this time. And this is why David strengthened himself in the Lord. You see, it's an amazing thought when you think about it like that. In the midst of destruction, in despair, in the consequences of sin, it's the Lord that is the one he goes to. And there he finds his strength. And from then on, we see him turning, you know, things turn around for David quite dramatically. But whereas with Saul, he still is defiant. And he weeps, and we're going to see what, we'll just, we'll read a little bit more and see what happens to him now. 20 to 25. Then Saul immediately fell full length upon the ground and was very afraid because of the words of Samuel. Also there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day and all night. The woman came to Saul and saw that he was terrified and said to him, Behold, your maidservant has obeyed you and I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to your words which you spoke to me. So now also, please listen to the voice of your maidservant and let me set a piece of bread before you that you may eat and have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. However, his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to them. So he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. The woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she slaughtered it, and she took flour, kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread from it. She brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate, and then they arose and went away that night. Saul, frozen solid with fear and prostrate on the floor. He's reduced to a wreck at this point. Now I find this, again, just look at what sin has done to him, walking away from the Lord. Look at what it can cost a man or a woman when we walk away from the Lord. You see, this is the once great courageous king of Israel, Saul. This was a popular, it was popular to name your son Saul, if you had a son in Israel at this time, in honour of the king. He is left here a weeping, scared, pathetic, miserable wreck at night on the floor of a witch's house. You see how far he's come, how far he's fallen at this stage. And again, I would say, let's not look and judge and point fingers. We're all capable of this. You know, I believe we, all ha- we can all wander away from the Lord. Now, we might not go this far, but quite often we can fall pretty far, you know, if we don't repent. So let's not think this is just for like what we would class as really bad people. Those sorts of classifications really do no good. They don't help us. The lesson we need to learn from this is the word of the Lord is given for our benefit. It's given to help us flourish and prosper. That doesn't necessarily mean prosperity or an easy life, but it does mean in a direction where you are walking in the Lord's will. You are not in the land of the Philistines, so to speak. 
this is where David was at this time, he came to repentance, he becomes the king of Israel. Saul here now was in the land of the Philistines. He was the king of Israel, and he's weeping on the floor of a witch's house. I find that just a visual picture to be very, very powerful of what sin can do. And then we have this story, he's hungry, they urge him to eat food, and in effect Saul has his last meal here, like we would offer someone on death row. You have your last meal. This is pretty much his last meal. He's going to die very shortly in this battle. All right, we've got 11 verses. Let's quickly do these in chapter 29. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Now the Philistines gathered together all their their armies to Aphek, while the Israelites were camping by the spring which is in Jezreel. And the Lord of the Philistines were proceeding on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were proceeding on in the rear with Achish. We've seen Saul's depravity, and now we're kind of back with David, and we're going to see David's predicament. Obviously, I've shared to you what happens in the next chapter already, but David now is getting kind of his just desserts for, for living in the land of the Philistines for so long. And notice, it says this is the Jezreel. This is the Jezreel Valley. The Jezreel Valley is part of the Valley of Armageddon, or Armageddon is part of the Jezreel Valley, I should say. Now, you may have heard that phrase, Armageddon. It's a popular sort of apocalyptic term that we find in movies and things like that. It's a, a basically a poor translation of the phrase Har Megiddo, which means the Mount of Megiddo, which was a mountain here in the Jezreel Valley, in the southwest part of the Jezreel Valley. Now, this is an amazing flat plain sort of in the north, the Galilee area, area of Israel. And it's been a location of many battles over the years. Napoleon when he first laid eyes upon it, he said this, he said, all the armies of the world could manoeuvre their forces on this vast plain. There is no place in the whole world more suited for war than this. It is the most natural battleground of the whole earth. It's Napoleon, and he did fight a war there. Uh, I'll just read to you a few of the wars that have taken place in the battle in the Valley of Armageddon. The war between Thutmose III, the Egyptian pharaoh, and the Canaanites, like 2000 BC. Deborah and Barak, versus Sisera, Judges chapter 5, remember when we studied that, that was up in this area. King Solomon versus Pharaoh Shishak, Second Chronicles, you'll read about that. Josiah versus Pharaoh Necho, and two kings, you'll read about that. Uh, jumping forward in history, Saladin, the great sort of Muslim uh, leader, and the Crusaders, they fought in the Valley of Armageddon four or five times, I believe. Uh, the Egyptian, the, Mam- the Mamluks versus the Mongols that came over. Um, Genghis Khan, they fought in the Valley of Armageddon. Napoleon Bonaparte and the Ottomans in 1799 fought in the Valley of Armageddon. And General George Allenby, the British soldier, remember he's the guy I told you about who dismounted from his horse as he walked into Jerusalem. Um, he fought the Ottoman Turks in 1918 in the Valley of Armageddon. And we also know, see it's been a place of many sort of world-changing battles at this time. And we know that there will be one more battle that happens in the Valley of Armageddon. It's called the Battle of Armageddon. That's where the name comes from. Revelation 16, verses 13 to 16. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophets, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes, so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together at the place in Hebrew, which is called Armageddon. Now obviously, this is from Revelation, it's apocalyptic language, it's a little different sort of genre than some of these places, but what it's basically talking about here is, and you see again the spirit realm involved very much in these things, the nations that are gathered together in this end period of history primarily to try and destroy the Jews in the land of Israel at this time, hence the battle is taking place in the Valley of Armageddon in northern Israel. This is also the same battle that we learned from Zechariah, from Isaiah and these other prophets, from Matthew 24, that during this battle is the time when Jesus will come down in the sky and his feet will touch on the Mount of Olives and he will fight the great day of the, the great battle of the Lord. And that's sort of the end of this period of history. And you see this sort of prefigured by all of these battles that have happened in this period of hist- in this area. It's a very significant area. Now imagine the scene that we see here back in Samuel. David is marching to war with the Philistines. He's at the back of this party of the Philistines. Okay, so this is the anointed king of Israel. 
going to war with Israel's longest standing enemies. I'd imagine he's sort of thinking at this point, what am I going to do to get out of this one? He's got no clue. I'd imagine his men are sort of thinking, David, he must have a plan. He must have a plan. Something's going to happen. He doesn't have a plan at this point. You see, the point is, he's forgotten who he is, and he's forgotten what his calling was. And he's done that because he's sort of strayed a little bit from the Word of God. And this is a danger that we can all have when we stray from the Word of God. You see, we need to remember where our identity is found and what our calling is. And if we're Christians, our identity is found in Christ. And I think that's very good to remember in an age... We live in an age of what we call identity politics. Everyone heard that term? Do you know what I mean by that term? Identity politics is sort of this current movement that identifies particular minorities and elevates... They call it intersectionality. And this is, it's a big thing in American politics at the moment. You have to vote intersectionality. If you're one of a particular set of minority groups, you are elevated and given more rights. And it's, it's, just, it's just nonsense, basically. And the church, unfortunately, is being duped and kind of getting into these sorts of things. We need to remember our identity is in Christ, no one else. Okay? Obviously, we have other, other identities in some sense that we assume in this world, but primarily we are new creatures in Christ, and we're all part of that kingdom of God. Now, as they're marching now, the Philistines come to them. The lords of the other Philistine armies come to Achish and they say, um, what are you doing with the Hebrews? You know, we're on our way to go and kill the Hebrews, but yet you've got, you know, a thousand or six hundred of them in battle with us now. That's a very stupid thing to do. What if they turn on us in the battle? And, you know, that would be a great time for them to pull a double cross and um, take us out. And basically, uh, the story sort of goes, let's read verses 3 to 5. Then the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me these days, or rather these years? And I have found no fault in him from the day he deserted to me this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Make the man go back that he may return to his place where you have assigned him, and do not let him go down to the battle with us, or in the battle he may become an adversary to us. For with what could this man make himself acceptable to his Lord? Would it not be the heads of these men? Is this not David of whom they sing in the dances, saying Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? You remember that little song from earlier on in the book of Samuel? It is obviously so well known that they know it in the land of the Philistines. Now, so this is the situation we have. What are these Hebrews doing here? And then notice, King, King Achish tries to defend David. And he says, I found no fault in him from the day he deserted to me this day. Now again, I find this a huge, kind of stinging condemnation on David. He had succeeded in identifying so much with his Philistine neighbours at this point that the king of the Philistines didn't really have anything bad to say about him. Okay, he was so accepted by these people at this, in the place he was living that he had, the king of Achish didn't have anything bad to say about him. Now you would want, you would really hope that the king of the Philistines would have something bad to say about the king of Israel if things were operating as they should be. It reminds me of Jesus' words, Luke six twenty six: Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. This is a lesson for us. You see, we mustn't be too comfortable in this system. More and more, as we see sort of biblical foundations collapsing around us, the things we believe, the lives we want to live, will stand in stark contrast to many things that the world is pushing on us at this time. There are things you will be vilified for. There are things that uh, people will just not understand. You see, I believe that's going to happen, and we can take courage in this. You see, what 2 Timothy one twelve. Paul says this, For I suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. You see, he's entrusted himself to the Lord. He's fully confident that the Lord will take him through to completion in his life. And as things get darker, as it's often said in Christian circles, that gives the light an opportunity to shine brighter. But the light is only going to shine brighter as we as a church live in obedience to the word of God. 
Because it is Jesus who is the light of the world and it is the word of God that is a light and a lamp to our path in this world. This is why it's so important that we don't try and win approval from the world because whilst that may be, you know, the the Achishes of the Philistines may say, you know, I don't see anything bad about him, that's a condemnation. You know, if the world says, oh, these Christians, they're not really any different from us, they do the same things we want to do, they, you know, they're not living any different. The only thing is that they go to church on a Sunday you know, I say that's <laughs> we're not going to be a church that's moving in the power of the Spirit for that. You know, many of us we pray and we want to see these great revivals and these things happen in the past. These are the sorts of things. And as as is often said, revival starts with us individually. We have to have that passion and desire to live out these things. And it's hard in this world. You know, we know we know it is. Um, but God is with us and He will give us the strength to do that. You see, if the Philistines speak well of us, we are too familiar and we are too loyal to them. There's nothing about us that contrasts their way of living, and that is wrong. 1 Peter, it says, 1 Peter 2.9, We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. It's only when we're living in obedience to the word of God, by the power of the Spirit, that we will be able to proclaim the excellencies of God. Now this is not saying we're perfect people, far from it. We've come on, we're just looking at the life of David. (laughs) You know, the point, the point is, we have hearts that want to follow him, hearts that are quick to bring our sacrifice to the altar, so to speak, that are quick to confess our sins to God. And that's all we need to do. Trust the Lord and move forward with him. And as Paul said, we're confident that he will guard what we've entrusted to him. Let's look at these last four verses and then we'll close. 6 to 11. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been upright, and your going out and your coming in with me in the army are pleasing in my sight, for I have not found evil in you from the day of your coming until this day. Nevertheless, you are not pleasing in the sight of the Lord's. Now therefore return and go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. David said to Achish, But what what have I done? And what have you found in your servant from the day when I came before you to this day, that I may not go out and fight against the enemies of the Lord my king? But Achish replied to David, I know that you are pleasing in my sight, like an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he must not go up to battle. Now when, now then, arise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord, who have come with you, and as soon as you have arisen in the early morning and have, have light, depart. So David arose early, he and his men, to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Achish calls him to him and says, I'm sorry, you can't fight. It's not you, it's not you, don't worry. Uh, I still like you, but I need you just to go home. It's causing me trouble with the other men. Now David, I don't believe he's being entirely sincere. And he, he, I think he sees his moment. And he's like, Whew. and he's like, oh, but I'd do anything for you. I really would. But I'll, it's okay, I'll go, don't worry, I'll go. And he goes. Now, you see, I think <laughs> this is the Lord stepping in here. Because I don't really think David could have quite knowingly actually gone to war with the children of Israel and killed them on behalf of the Philistines. That would probably disqualify him, his, king, his kingly sort of role in that situation. But he was so entangled with his sin, he had no way out of this. He couldn't lie his way out. He'd already been lying to this, this king. And he was outnumbered severely by the entire army of the Philistines. So I see this as just the Lord having mercy and sovereignly rescuing him from the consequences of his sin to stop him doing these things. Now again, this is a lesson for us. We get ourselves (laughs) into trouble with our sin. We get ourselves into pits that we cannot get ourselves out of. We don't have the tools, the means or the strength. But what we do need is a rescue. What we do need is a saviour. You see... You remember the words of Corrie ten Boom that I've shared with you before, where she said, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. You see, and that was actually her sister who said those words, but it's you know, attributed to her more often. God's love, there's no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. You see, God offers us a way out. It doesn't matter where you are, what you've done, where you've been to, you are only ever one prayer away from God. One heartfelt prayer of repentance and you are walking with the Lord again. And that is the grace of God that allows us to do that. It's almost unbelievable. That should not be something that causes license in our hearts. If your heart is thinking, oh, I can do what I want and just repent, the Lord knows you thought that. He knew it before you even thought it yourself. 
Okay, The Lord looks at the heart, he understands a heart that is reaching out in repentance to God. And it doesn't matter what sort of a pit you're in, God has his arms open and he will take you out of it and you can carry on walking with the Lord. He offers us a way out and then he will give us the strength and the power through his spirit to continue walking the life of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, Lord, for the lessons of Scripture, Lord, even these things that are difficult for us to understand. But we know that you have truth for us, Lord, in this wonderful word. And we pray, Lord, that we would all have strength to follow Jesus, that we would all be honest with our with our shortcomings and our failings, knowing, Lord, that you've paid the price, that uh, you gave your Son, Lord, that we would be able to have eternity with you. And we thank you for that, Lord. And we pray, Lord, as a church, that we would love one another and encourage one another to do this in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.